As Murray said, today's Bible readings 1 John, chapter 5, verses 5 to 21. And as he also said, you can follow along in your Bibles on a device or it'll be up on the screen behind me. One John 5, starting at verse 5. Who is the one who conquers the world, but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Jesus Christ, he is the one who came by water and blood, not by water only, but by water and by blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because of the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water and the blood. And these three are in agreement. If we accept human testimony, God's testimony is greater because it is God's testimony that he has given about his son. The one who believes in the son of God that has his, this testimony within himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony God has given about his son. And this is the testimony God has given us eternal life. And this life is his son. The one who has the Son has life. The one who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. If anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, he should ask and God will give life to him, to those who commit sin that doesn't lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I am not saying he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin and there is sin that doesn't lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin, but the one who is born of God keeps him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know the true one. We are in the true one, that is, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in him. Love consists in this. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in His Son. Well, good morning everyone. Uh, my name is Ryan. I'm one of the student ministers here. And um, yeah, as we think about uh, the end of John, and as Mari's already primed us to think about death, what a grim way to start uh, Sunday morning, uh, I want to consider that there's a, a bit of a romance about the last things someone says, isn't there? I don't know if you've ever thought about your last words or whether they'd be significant or something like that, but there's a few that have been recorded through history. Here's a few. 
Here's Leonardo da Vinci who said, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. There's a comedian named Groucho Marx who, as he was dying, said, this is no way to live. <laughs> Joking right to death. And there's a, a movie director, uh, Alfred Hitchcock, who says, one never knows the ending. One has to die to know exactly what happens after death. Although Catholics have their hopes. Now, according to Hitchcock, Catholics might have hopes, but according to John, we actually have certainty. We have certainty for an eternity with Jesus. We have confidence about eternal life. Today, we've come to our end of our journey in 1 John. If you've been with us for the last seven weeks, I hope you've found it encouraging as we've heard what John has to say about Jesus, about keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, who gives us eternal life. Today's passage is John's last words to us. But I want you to consider that these last words, they're not more important than the, what has come the last six weeks. Uh, John's been uh, crafting this letter, helping us see Jesus as our light, our life, and our love. And today we're particularly going to look even closely, more closely at the idea of Jesus as our eternal life. But we still need to consider these words, and he's put them here at the end, I think, to kind of sum up, to capture what's been happening in the whole book. I want us to consider that the key idea from today's passage is that God's testimony is that we can be confident about our eternal life in Jesus. We're going to see this key idea played out in two sections. First, we're going to see the true testimony from verse 5 to 12. Then we're going to think about our complete confidence in verse 13 to 21. Let me pray for us as we uh, hear from this again. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. May your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and your greater glory our supreme concern. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, the first thing we're going to look at is the true testimony from verse 5 to 12. Just before our passage, in verse 4, John ended by saying, the, the victory that conquers the world is our faith. You might uh, be confused about what about our faith conquers the world? Well, that's how he starts in verse 5, by describing what aspect of our faith conquers the world. If you look at verse 5, it doesn't talk about us. It says, who is the one who conquers the world, but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? See, our faith is not in ourselves. It's not about us. Our faith has an object, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Our belief is that He is the Son of God, and He is the one that conquers the world. And there are three things that John says that testify to this in verse 6. Water, blood, and verse 7, the Spirit. The Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three are in agreement. 
Now, what are these? The water, blood, and spirit. What are these things that testify that Jesus is the Son of God? Well, I think water is the baptism of Jesus. That moment where he appeared on earth and the Holy Spirit comes down and everyone sees that he is the Son of God. Blood, I think blood is probably a little bit more clear to most of us. That's Jesus' death on the cross. His blood shed for us in his death because the Jews said that he made himself king of the Jews, that he made himself the son of God. And I don't know how well you know your Bible, but there's that moment where when he dies, the Roman foreign centurion looks at Jesus and says, surely this was the son of God. Jesus' blood, his crucifixion, shows us that he was the Son of God. And the third thing, the Spirit. The Spirit testifies that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, he's been doing that all through history. He's been doing that in the hearts of believers. He's been doing that for us here at church through his word. The Spirit declares to each and every one of us that Jesus is the Son of God. The point of all these things, verse 9, is that God's testimony is greater because God's testimony is that He has given about His Son. See, we're kind of circling back to chapter 1, if you were here seven weeks ago now, where we considered John's testimony. He was really emphasizing his eyewitness testimony about how he saw Jesus and who he wants us to see Jesus as. But John is, that testimony that John said, it was true, but John's saying God's testimony is even greater than that because God is testifying to us that Jesus is the Son of God. And the contents of the testimony are there in verse 11. It says, this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. And that's why we have this key idea for today's passage today. God's testimony is that we can be confident that we can, that about our eternal life in Jesus. That's what God has been testifying to us through His Spirit throughout the Scriptures, through the water at baptism, through the blood at Jesus' death, that we can have eternal life in Jesus because He is the Son of God. What, what does this mean for us? Well, John gives us two options in verse 10 and verse 12. Option one, you can choose not to believe in God. You can make God a liar by disbelieving His testimony. And the result of that is that you can not have life. Or option two, you can have the Son and have life. Which of these options will you choose? Most of us here at TAC have chosen option one. That's not right. We've chosen option two. I forgot which option was which. <laughs> Hopefully, most of us here at TAC have chosen option two. Uh, we've chosen the Son because He is the Son of God. We've chosen life because we know that we'll have certainty for eternity. And John's giving us confidence in that. 
because God's testifying to the fact that Jesus gives us eternal life. We have certainty greater than any human testimony. And we believe lots of human testimony, don't we? When someone comes and tells us something, we believe them because we know that they're trustworthy. Well, God is even more trustworthy. God's testimony is even greater. And we have believed in Him and we've had life. But maybe you haven't decided yet. That's okay. You're still welcome here. Maybe you're still investigating. You're still figuring this thing out. But I, I want to ask the question, why not? Maybe it's that eternal life is not that appealing to you because life kind of sucks right now and you can't imagine an eternity of a sucky life. But eternal life is not like that. See, John himself, he actually sees a vision of eternal life in Revelation 21 verse 4. And he says... He, that is God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more. Because the previous things have passed away. This life might suck. It's still true for Christians. This life might suck. But eternal life will not suck. In fact, eternal life will rule because Jesus will rule because he will be there to wipe away every kind of sadness that we have here in this world. Or maybe you haven't chosen to follow Jesus yet for the opposite reason. Maybe life is so good and you can't really imagine better. Maybe you're so focused on now, maybe you're so focused on the things of this world to, you know, make sure your little nest egg is as big a nest egg as you can get. It's an ostrich, not a chicken. Um, You're too focused on now to take religion too seriously. I mean, you're okay with turning up on the occasional Sunday, but you don't want to commit more because there's lots of other equally important things. But the danger of being someone who knows the truth and ignores its claims on you is that you never know the timing of your life. You see, you'll still be held to account for what you're ignoring. And there's a high cost. That's why we talk about Jesus and salvation every week here at TAC, because we don't want you to miss out on this great eternal life. The cost of waiting too long is too high. One of my friends that I was hanging out with uh, just yesterday was telling me about a colleague, a 29-year-old who was in the gym, very buff, working out, and had a heart attack. 29-year-old. The cost of waiting too long is too high. It's hell, it's suffering, it's a death that is even worse kind of sadness than what this world has offered. Ken Gillette, who's a magician, but also an atheist, he said this. He said, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe that eternal, if everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? If I believed without a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you don't believe it, well, there's a certain point where I tackle you. This is more important than that. Consider this your spiritual tackle. John is saying there's a certain eternal life 
He can see the road ahead, and he wants you to know that you can have this eternal life if you have the Son, if you have Jesus. We have God's testimony that eternal life is true. We have confidence that we can have it in Jesus. This is true for you too if you believe in Jesus. So I would encourage you, even today, to choose Jesus, to choose life. Well, the idea of complete confidence actually comes out even more in verse 13 to 21. In fact, I think verse 13 is the central purpose for the whole letter. That's a grand claim for, you know, it's my passage, so I get to say this is the most important part of the whole thing. But uh, I think uh, the other preachers would agree with me that this is the central purpose of the letter. John says, I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know you have eternal life. He's writing to Christians that we might have confidence. We might know for sure that we have eternal life. And he continues in verse 14 and 15 by saying that we can actually have confidence that we can ask God for anything that's according to his will and he hears us. Those who are his will pray to him in line with his desires, and God loves to give his children the things that he desires. Verse 16 actually says that there are things that are not according to his will. If anyone sees a believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, he should ask and God will give him life to those who commit sin that doesn't lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I'm not saying he should pray for that. There are things that are not according to God's will, and he's saying you should not pray for that. Now, what is he talking about here? What's he talking about when he talks about these sins that lead to death? It's a little bit confusing, and I don't know if you've come this morning to think, oh, I'm just going to receive from the guy at the front That's not what's going to happen. I'm going to give you an opportunity to talk to people around you and have a go at this question. What do you think sin that leads to death means? Have a go. You have a minute, and then I'm going to give you my working theory. All right, talk to someone around you. All right. Now, I've had, um, I've had a few more months to think about this question than you have, so I'm not going to hold you to your one-minute answer as like the final word, unless you want it to be a final word. Um, 
It's funny, Murray changed my batteries in that time. That wasn't the intention. I didn't put this question to have battery change time. But I was, I was saying it would be a, quite a good illustration if my batteries died to think about certainty for eternity, right? We had, with Jesus, we have everlasting batteries. No. Um, uh, I don't know what the person you talked to talked about. Uh, if you have a different working theory to me, I'd love to talk to you about it after. But here's my working theory. Uh, I think he's actually talking, when he talks about a sin that leads to death, he's talking about stuff that he's already talked about in 1 John. He's talking about those false prophets, those antichrists that appeared in chapter 2 and chapter 4, you know, as we were discussing it a few weeks ago. Those people who used to be here in church, but not only rejected Jesus, but went and tried to deviate other people from Jesus. They, they tried to take people away from God by preaching against Jesus. They're these really uh, divisive, uh, evil kind of people who've not only gone against God, but actually gone in such a way that they're trying to take other people away from God as well. So if you're worried, you're thinking, have I committed this sin that leads to death? Am I not going to have eternal life? Well, one clue that that's not you is that you're here or you're online because you're still either investigating Jesus or you've put your trust in Jesus. You have certainty for eternity if you've put your trust in Jesus. But there are people, there are people who not only reject Jesus, but go and spread false things about him. John says he doesn't want us to pray for that because they are doing things that are not according to God's will. But I I wonder if... uh, if you uh, see in that, in that verse that he's actually contrasting what's happening here with fellow believers. He, he's saying that we ought to pray for fellow believers to whom God gives life. Uh, implicit in that is this assumption that these false prophets, these antichrists, they're not believers. They're not God's people. They're not people who are living according to God's will. And so we ought not to waste our time praying for them. But did you notice something other, something else interesting that he says, that he asks of Christians? He says that when you see someone sinning, that you ought to pray for them. Is that your default response when you see someone sinning? Because mine is usually either to go and, you know, have a word with them, or maybe if I'm not that kind of conflict-averse, uh, if I'm more conflict-averse, I might sometimes just judge them in my head, or I might just look down at them. I can't believe they're doing that. But he's saying our default response as God's people ought to be to pray for our brothers and sisters when we see them sin. Verse 18 talks about the fact that everyone who has been born of God does not sin. Now, we know that's kind of not true as we uh, think about that. And Cole actually helped us think about that when he explained chapter 3, verse 6 to 9 before, that John's actually talked about repeated sin. We do not keep on sinning in the same way because we are secure in Christ. Verse 18 and 19, they both talk about the present reality of the evil one and his ability to sway the world under his power, but that he can't actually touch us because God keeps us. Verse 20 says, In contrast to this evil one, 
we know the true one, Jesus, who is far greater than the evil one. Because Jesus is the true God, because Jesus is eternal life. Verse 21 finishes with John's charge. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Now, why does he end with this? Well, I think he knows that one of the ways that the evil one has throughout history tried to tempt God's people away is through idols. It's through tempting us to looking at something else for our love, something else for our comfort, something else for our hope than looking at Jesus. When John wrote this letter, when he was thinking about idols, he was thinking about, you know, these little kind of statues that represented these false gods that the evil one used uh, for people through worship to try to distract God's people from worshipping Him all throughout the Bible. These kind of idols, they're still around today, maybe not in Australia, but where I grew up in India, if you x-rayed almost every single house as you walk down the street, every single one of them would have one, two, ten, twenty idols in their house, let alone the places where people would go to worship uh, on top of that. But these idols, even those ones, they're, they're physical manifestations of our desires. They're physical manifestations of our hopes. They're physical manifestations of things we're trying to find comfort in. And this has been a problem all throughout God's people's history. I've been reading the book of Exodus, where you know God was manifest amongst His people, and He saved them by his power from slavery, he showed them his presence. And when their leader, Moses, is off talking to God for just a short time, what do they do? They create a golden cow to worship instead and say that that's the thing that has saved them from slavery. You see, this is part of man's nature. Uh, John Calvin actually said, man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. The light is always burning in the factory of our hearts, trying to turn the good things that God has given us into a new idol for us to focus on. You see, when our minds, when our hearts grow thick and dull to the truth, well, we just put another thing into the factory and churn out a new idol to distract our love away from Jesus. Sometimes these are evil things, but the more common idols, I think, are the subtle ones. They're the good things that we have turned into something that we put our hopes in instead of Jesus. They're the good things that slowly become our top priority instead of Him. And this is not just a thing that Christians have recognized throughout history. Even non-Christians have recognized this nature in humanity. Uh, Neil Gaiman, in a book called American Gods, he said, there are new gods growing in America, clinging to growing knots of belief. Gods of credit card and freeway, of internet and telephone, of radio and hospital and television. Gods of plastic and of beeper and of neon. You see, John's 
challenge as he finishes this letter is for us to guard ourselves from whatever these false gods, these idols that tempt our hearts are. And the way we do that is by knowing the true God, by knowing Jesus Christ and the safety of eternal life in Him. Don't let your minds grow thick and dull to the truth of Jesus. As I was thinking about this for myself, I, I had some questions that I used to apply for myself. Uh, what's the idol you need to guard most against at this time? How does knowing the truth about Jesus help you against this false idol? And how does God's test, has God's testimony about Jesus given you confidence about eternal life? Here's an example that I was thinking about recently. One of the idols that I need to really guard myself against is achievement. Uh, I want to be known as that person that gets stuff done. I, I want to know, be known as someone who performs beyond people's expectations. I, I set high standards for myself and I like to achieve them. Uh, and recently in my study context, one of the things that happened was that I got the worst mark that I've ever got in my studies. Even though I put in heaps of effort, I got this really bad mark. And I felt really sad. I felt really, this might be very far removed from lots of you who haven't studied for a while, but I felt really sad about it because I suddenly realized I'd put my identity as being this person that got good marks. But I realized that I was longing for that more than I longed for Jesus. And this transfers to my faith, faith too, right? I, I have to fight, fight the urge to think that my achievement somehow gives me value before Jesus. You, you see, I can't actually ever achieve enough for God's high standards, but He still loves me regardless. He still values me as His child, and He sent Jesus to save me from my inability to meet my own standards or other standards, and certainly uh, he saved me from needing to meet those standards that he has put. God's testimony throughout the Bible is that the only achievement that I have that matters is that I'm united with Jesus. God's testimony is greater than this idol, and I can be confident about my eternal life in Jesus. That might be the idol for some of you. It might be something else. Uh, I was joking with some of the guys who woke up early this morning to watch the Champions League final uh, about maybe sport being that idol for them. Maybe it is. You know, you can enjoy sport without having that as your idol. Uh, but, but maybe it's something else. Maybe it's uh, comfort. Someone recently shared with me that their idol was their home and how nice their home is, how clean their home is, and they put a lot of stock in that. But I'd encourage you just, again, just a minute, you know, I've had months to think about this, but just for a minute to ponder for yourself what that idol might be for you. And after that minute, I've actually invited Anne from our congregation to come and share a testimony about her experience and how Jesus has helped her. So, I'll give you a minute, and then Anne's going to come up and share something from her experience.
found this series really great in just um, considering uh, where I stand with God and, and what he's done in my life. And this has been a great question too to think about. An idol can be a good thing that you've turned into the best thing. Um, and the idol I've struggled with throughout my whole life is family. I've got a beautiful family. I grew up in a beautiful, loving family. My parents taught me about God, about his abounding love for me. They nurtured me in life and they nurtured me in my faith. The last day I had with my dad, the day before Ian and I were going overseas, he was chatting to some tourists at the traffic lights, which he was wont to do um, while he was with you, while we were waiting to cross. And he somehow moved the conversation around to ask them if they knew God. I love my family so deeply, but it's so easy to love someone or some people who are so tangible. I met my husband Ian at school and we married him. I married him the day after I finished uni, couldn't wait. Um, he's taught me so much about so many things. Um, but his biggest teaching has been about God. We were blessed with two amazing, beautiful children and they in turn have blessed us with two um, lovely partners of theirs and four gorgeous grandchildren. Um, I love them. They have been constant supporters of my life. Um, they've been constant in leading me closer to who Jesus is. But it's so easy to put my trust and dependence in those that I love so deeply, to seek them in the times when I struggle and to seek them in the good times. But I've learnt that this dependence on my beautiful family is so temporary. Ian and I have had the privilege of working overseas for some years and the most painful thing we had to do was say goodbye to our family. Excruciating pain, saying good those, those goodbyes. But one verse that's helped me and that pops into my head so often and it's like a soothing balm. 2 Corinthians 12.9 My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. But slowly God is helping me to let go of my family idol. While overseas, three of our parents and our first little granddaughter went to be with the Lord. So painful a loss, but so beautiful that they're in their eternal home. I think in this I'm a slow learner, but our loving God is ever patient. In 1 John 4.15 I've been reminded, if, we, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. I'm learning to rely on that love of God rather than on the love of my family. I'm learning uh, that the tangible is finite, but I'm learning to let go of the finite for the infinite God. Because he says to me in 1 John 5:13. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Thanks, Anne, for sharing that. Now, I don't know if you practice any kind of active reflection with the Bible, but... 
I would actually encourage you as, you, uh, as we finish this book, this series to a close, to actually go back and read through 1 John again. Look back in those kind of verses in verse four, verse, chapter 4, verse 15, that helps, helped us actually sharpen our love for Jesus. Uh, my hope and prayer is that today's passage has encouraged some of you to choose life and boosted the confidence of others in the eternal life that you have. But beware the attempts of the evil one to tempt you. Remember that his attempts are not greater than Jesus' ability to keep you until he returns. And that John's challenge to us is to guard ourselves from idols. These are John's parting words to us. And God's God's testimony is great and it's for us, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son.